Hello everyone, Simon here. Thanks for tuning in again to Philosophy Takes on the News. Just a word before the normal introduction. Um, at the start of the pod, you'll hear me say that we're talking about two main topics this week. In fact, we ended up talking about three and we decided to publish the third. So we start by thinking about um, Ukraine and the media. And then we have a second segment, which is about university admissions. And just to make clear, that's about um, structural issues to do with university admissions and the school sector um, in the UK, um, rather than anything to do with anyone who might be studying or teaching at uh, state or independent schools. And then there's that third section. So the third section, which in the end we decided to record and release, is about Jordan Peterson. Uh, I hope you enjoy all three topics. And now there's the normal introduction. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 18th of May. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with hundreds of soldiers evacuated from the Azovstal steelworks in Mariupol and Finland and Sweden applying to join NATO. The UK government is threatening to tear apart the Northern Ireland Protocol with the EU, and in the Royal Courts of Justice in London, the Wagatha Christie libel trial continues. This week, we'll be thinking about Ukraine and the media and university admissions. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. Joining me this week, we have first-time guest Aaron Wendland, Vision Fellow in Public Philosophy at King's College London and a Senior Research Fellow at Massey College in the University of Toronto. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Simon. Fantastic to be here. Great. Good to have you. And uh, joining us for another spin, it's Helen Froe, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University. Hi, Helen. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. I hope it's fantastic for you to be here. Brilliant. Well, Helen. Okay, good, yeah. good. Okay, so let's get to our, um, our first item. The war in Ukraine raises a number of terrible issues, many of which we've discussed before on the pod. One issue we haven't yet discussed is the media and how Vladimir Zelensky and indeed many other Ukrainians have used it so effectively. Aaron, you raised this for us. Uh, do you want to explain what issues you think um, it raises, please? Sure. I think Zelensky's sort of stage presence and skill as an actor has galvanized both people at home and abroad. And I, yeah, I just feel like there's been lots of discussion about his sort of courage and staying in Kiev at the beginning and his sort of prowess in political decision making. But I think a lot of this kind of leans on his his background as an actor. So I thought this is something we could dive into a little bit. Of course, he famously was the lead actor in a series called Servant of the People, where he's a high school teacher who gives a rant in his classroom about government corruption. This rant goes viral. And the next thing you know, he's elected president. So clearly Zelensky, i.e. The, the politician today, has more than a little awareness of the power of acting and also sort of social media. So I thought we could talk a little bit about that. And I thought there was an interesting contrast between sort of Zelensky's success as both an actor and a politician and 
let's call it philosophy's long-standing skepticism of actors, poetry, narrative storytelling, right? Plato is famously wary of the power of epic and lyric poetry because it sort of pulls people away from, leads them astray, um, leads them away from the truth and virtue. Rousseau, in his letter to D'Alembert, um, shared sort of Plato's view that drama and theater lead to or can lead to moral decay. And he sort of argues that the seductive and kind of manipulative and, I guess, deceptive nature of acting potentially gives actors the ability to sort of do great harm outside the theater, right? They can deceive people, um, this kind of stuff. And he thinks that actors' abilities to take on a variety of roles, you know, means they're kind of inauthentic and potentially untrustworthy. And so you wouldn't want them to get involved in politics. But to my mind, it seems that Zelensky's skill as an actor has also translated into something like political virtue, you know, his ability to play different roles has allowed him to step up in this wartime. Um, he's able to speak skillfully to people in different countries and different people at home. He knows how to sort of put on these different hats. And he has a stage presence that's sort of captivating to all kinds of different audiences. And so this, I think, has been really powerful and has contributed in some way to the success of Ukraine's um, pushback against the Russian invasion. And of course, he, you know, his time in front of a camera means he's capable of producing incredibly slick YouTube, TikTok, Instagram videos, and these have been circulated around the world. And through these videos, you know, he's garnered support from people all over the world. So I think these are things worth kind of potentially diving into. And then maybe if we have a time, I think there are all kinds of questions about just the role of social media, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and what this means for the coverage of a war in the 21st century. These videos are spread all over the world. You, everybody has almost immediate access to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. But of course, there are problems with social media, right? Misinformation. It could literally be a matter of life and death if you give away your position to the enemy. There's a worry of you know, if you're look, watching Ukraine on TikTok, you just see the war as light entertainment, like everything else on TikTok. And so you become desensitized to it. And I guess the final question I have about this is, should we and ought we be publicizing the pain of others? Um, so these are some questions I had about sort of the social media and, and covering the war in Ukraine. Great. That's, uh, that's a really helpful introduction, uh, Aaron. I've got loads of things going through my head as you were speaking. Helen, do you want to go first, though? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's certainly a lot to talk about on this on this issue. I mean, one thing I think that's really, is important is the way in which um, this way of, you don't want to say promoting, but this way of kind of packaging and presenting the war, there is this real danger that it just starts to look like a film. And yeah. there was some kind of pushback a, um, a few weeks ago with um, there'd been this kind of almost sort of treating Zelensky like some sort of, you know, film star, some kind of, you know, um, sex symbol of the war. Um, and... Then you got this kind of backlash of people saying, you know, this is this is treating it as if it's if it's kind of a, a you know a Hollywood movie, and actually, you know, these are this is a, yeah, a wartime yeah. president trying to stop his people from being killed, and it's pretty disrespectful to to talk about him in these terms. Um, yeah, he's being presented as if he's on the cover of People magazine. Yeah, yeah, um, it's really. I mean, I do think that there is, as you said, the the broader issue of which is something I've thought about a bit in other contexts about uh, the things that it's okay to look at. 
my colleague Jonathan Parry and I wrote a paper about why it's wrong to look at revenge porn websites. And I think, you know, the, the similar sort of questions here about when is it permissible to kind of uh, circulate um, images of people uh, often without their consent. So a lot of the images that we've seen related to the war are of dead bodies, of injured people, injured civilians, and there's difficult questions about the extent to which you don't want, it's not, exploitation's not the right word, but certainly making use of these images of suffering in order to garner support <coughs> for Ukraine's resistance. Um, and I do think there's going to be something like a kind of lesser evil justification for that kind of use. Um, but it's not unproblematic um, to think about the way in which you take images of dead bodies. Yeah, I mean, there are these I mean, sort of journalistic ethics questions, right, about the, the use of these images, even when they're being used for good. Um, there's still kind of um, difficult questions about what do you do about the fact that these people haven't agreed to be used in this way. I mean, the thought just for me, uh, just focusing on this on this second set of issues you raised, Aaron, but I do want to come back to Zelensky himself and uh, that, yeah, because on, on previous episodes, we've talked about how skillful, in, in passing, we've talked about how skillful Zelensky is and the way you, you've outlined, because it's clear that over a period of time, people's attention wanes. I mean, whilst a number of news news sites, let's say in the UK, still have, you know, banner with Ukraine stories often near the top or at the top, there's this kind of cost of living crisis, there's, you know, problems in Parliament, all sorts of things, and they often... Uh, now are getting top billing right in the right. news agenda right yeah. and so we're at a point where clearly ukraine is an issue we're going to dominate the news probably for the rest of this year but it's kind of going down people's news agendas you know they're not devoting as much attention and so you can see why there'd be a there'd be motivation to present and package as, as helen says the war but it kind of raises all of these these issues but there might be, as, as Helen says, that lesser evil justification yeah. because you've got to keep people's attention trained on this still horrible, truly awful thing that is happening to a country. Yeah, it's sort of sort of he's walking a tightrope or there is some kind of tightrope to be walked here that you don't want to turn it into the war into People magazine and sort of celebrity gossip, but you need to keep people's attention on what's happening. And so you have to sort of strike a balance between sort of either trivializing you don't want to you you run the risk of either trivializing this very serious event but you need to nevertheless capture the attention and at least i think to date he's done a pretty good job of mm. of walking that line at least him personally right there is some of this coverage the risk that you know he's on covers of magazines like you know instead of people's man of the year like the sexiest man of the year like i've seen this you know in twitter and things like that and it's like whoa uh like you know, this is, do you not appreciate what's happening here, right? There's that, that, that risk. Um, but it does, yeah, it, it, it keeps attention focused, as you say, Simon. I mean, the, 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 the contrast with some other recent and current conflicts is, is quite interesting. So, you know, we mentioned a few times Syria, Afghanistan, for example, and then things that are happening in, in parts of, um, of Eastern Africa. Uh, and they haven't got that same sort of a, attention um, yeah. But there are still harrowing, terrible things yes. that have been happening, and in case of, you know, of Syria, for example, for years. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, they just haven't got that galvanizing figure and that kind of, ga- in effect, I'm going to say galvanizing story, which yeah. is a kind of really interesting thing. I mean, I've mentioned a few yeah. times news stories rather than news items, and that's an interesting 
mm. thing around you know yeah, media for the last this, 40 years or so. It's all about stories rather than items. Yeah, yeah there is this very compelling narrative about around Zelensky. Yeah. Like literally, he played a school teacher who had become president through like a popular social media thing, and yeah. then he leverages his career as an actor to actually become. Like this, I don't think Hollywood, I don't think Zelensky himself could have written this story. Or maybe he did actually write the story, and this is why we're here discussing him. But yeah, it's interesting, like the contrast with Syria, the things that were, you know, maybe part of the reason that that Syria wasn't getting the same attention, like the things that did grab, had like the Instagram, and I mean, they were gruesome, like ISIS beheadings and things like this that would somehow break through the, the, the everyday media coverage. And this was the, like, these were the things that were getting hmm. attention. And they, in, in some ways, it was just the gruesome nature of that. Everybody sort of paid attention, but there wasn't this compelling story that Zelensky had that he's able to use to hold the world's attention. I mean, I think yeah. part of what it's also done is, um, is make Ukraine kind of relatable in a way, right? It's given us this kind of window into the conflict fronted by this very articulate um, skilled actor who, which is not to say he's acting in these videos, of course he's not, but it's, I think, is, is part of the explanation of why people have kind of identified with this conflict in a way which they haven't with the other conflicts that you've mentioned, because we get, you know, a daily update from the person at the forefront of the war, a particular single individual who's kind of our narrator of this mm-hmm. horrific tale. And it makes people see the effects of the war in a very kind of up close and personal way, which we just didn't have in those other conflicts. And I think that's partly why um, people, especially Europeans, kind of in some sense seem to feel this conflict in a way that they don't feel conflicts in Afghanistan and Yemen and elsewhere. You are because, part of this other person's story, right? This is the power yeah. of narrative storytelling. Like you, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all feel a bit like we have a stake in it, um, right? And, and this is also not just true of Zelensky, but also if you think about, say, the BBC's Ukraine Cast podcast, where they have people they go back to time and time again, who are, many of whom are just fairly ordinary Ukrainians, um, but the way in which we go back to them every couple of weeks and pick up their story and see how they're getting on, you know, where their relatives are, how they managed to get them out and so on. Mm-hmm. That kind of storytelling feels like the wrong world, but that kind of close detail following of particular individual accounts of the war is a really compelling way of getting people to understand what war means for normal people. Um, whereas I think that there's a sense that when people look at conflicts somewhere like Yemen or Afghanistan, ISIS beheadings and so on, the whole thing just seems so alien that they cannot grasp that ever happening to them. Um, whereas I think when they look at these stories of people hiding in basements in Ukraine, they do think, actually, yeah, I can kind of see how that happens. Um, I can see how that could happen to me. And I think that's a, I mean, yeah. probably, I mean, interestingly, probably not in a deliberate um, upshot of the way in which the war has been covered, but I think it definitely is an upshot of, of how the reporting has been carried out. Yeah. So in fact, that, that was the point I was going to get onto. Is, do, do you think that, I mean, we started with Zelensky and, and Ukraine. Is, is this really telling us something about us, about how we can uh, best relate to war and terror and other terrible news events? I think it does. I don't know if it tells us anything good. Yeah, well, you, you know, make it look like a film and people are gripped, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, this is, in some ways, it's not new. I think Sontag and some of her essays on photography spends a lot of time talking about the images coming out of Vietnam and there's the the, the famous sort of photograph of the uh, napalm girl and this what it feels like to, like you could actually see an image of what it's like to for a child to be suffering from napalm and that 
brought it home to Americans in a way that lots of things never really did before. Right. So it seemed that they're, yeah, maybe like Helen says, maybe this doesn't say something good, good about us that we need this very intimate and tangible way to relate to a conflict in order to get motivated and get rally behind a cause or something. But it seems that both the napalm girl photo and, you know, what Zelensky is doing now and storytelling does sort of suggest that there is cultivating a certain intimacy with people who are suffering in and through war is part of what it is involved in motivating support for your cause. This might be problematic because in the abstract, we're, we're not as compelled to get involved. We don't have that intimate connection. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this is your... This is your worry, yeah? Or why? Yeah. Is it, I don't know if this is good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, clearly it's not good, right? I mean, yeah. we should, we should, we should, we should care equally because um, we know the facts about these other conflicts, um, and we know, you know, we know that children are being killed in these other conflicts. We know that, um, you know, horrific things happen that people are tortured and they're murdered, um, and knowing the facts should be enough. And it's, I would, it's not as if, as if people don't care about those things, um, but I mean, I, I think. This is just one part of a broader explanation of why there has been this outpouring of support for Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right that it's it's kind of a bit of an overlooked part. So people have talked a lot about, say, the racial dimension and sort of um, the geographical links and the concerns, yeah. concerns about threats to Europe's safety, which are tied to Ukraine in a way they're not tied to Afghanistan, say. Um, so I do think there's a, a broader explanation as well why people feel yeah. they have a stake in it. But I do think that this um, the way in which it's sort of been... The, the Ukrainians have used social media and also of course because the Russians are so bad at it right that's the yeah. other thing is it's not just that the Ukrainians are good at it it's that the, the Russians yeah. have no similar narrative that they can spin on the other side that makes sense yeah. to anybody outside of Russia and convincing their own people is you know it's just not as important as it is in a proper democratic yeah. state and so there's not this this is great asymmetry between um, what the Ukrainians are doing and what the Russians are able to do you know what was interesting is the yeah, you know, when I started the discussion, it was sort of, hey, there seems to be something powerful about what Zelensky is doing, and it signals a certain kind of political virtue. But maybe Helen is sort of signaling the potential problems that worried Plato and Rousseau, and that you know we have this. It, it's a play on our sort of emotions, and so when Helen said, like, objectively speaking, there are facts that people are suffering all over. We should care equally about the suffering of everybody, but this person who's successful at sort of tapping into or developing an intimate relationship with us, we inevitably care more about them when we, we should care equally about everyone's, right? So this is potentially the risk or danger of, of storytelling is that it pulls us in ways that um, are, are potentially I think this is, you know, this this is a bad or a wrong on our part, on the audience's part. It's certainly it's not a criticism of Zelensky because he's doing what he needs to do and in order to get us to care in the ways that we ought to care anyway. Yeah, um, right. I think that's yeah. the, you know, yeah. that's the worry is that it's, it's <laughs> the fault's very much on our side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, so, so I was going to come come on to this thinking about your your opening comments, um, Aaron, in the in the first part, but perhaps I'll come at a different. Way so it seems if we were I mean as as Sam said you know we're praising Zelensky because he's got this uh, you know ability from from experience to present a, a, a narrative but you know one thing we've just mentioned right it, it draws our attention away from things that might be equally bad and and similarly I mean so yeah perhaps I'll put the question like this are we praising Zelensky just because of the of the ends right clearly it's uh, you know it's we've said before it's a clearly 
illegal, terrible conflict and invasion, right? But so, so if if the Russians were skilled at doing this, if they had one or two really slick um, presenters, right, <clears throat> we'd be saying, yeah, they're slick. But the really bad thing is, hey, they've got a terrible ends in mind, right? Because they're trying to defend this awful invasion. So really, the the only praise that be, can be given to Zelensky is at least he's he's justified because he's got good on his side because yeah. of the ends. Yeah. So in a way, when the um, when I was sort of setting this up, is that yeah, there are figures in the history of philosophy who sort of denigrate the theater, narrative storytelling, or acting, and I want to say that it, it's sort of like a tool that can mm. be used for good or bad, right? Yeah. It's not inherently problematic. Uh, I think there are ways it can be used for good, and it can, there are ways it can be used for bad, and part of this depends on the virtue of the actor, the character of the actor, and the ends the actor is pursuing. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I kind of see this as, as a skill or a techne that, that can be used one way or the other. Um, and I think that the example you gave is, is perfect, that if the Russians were equally skilled at using this tool, that we would be wrong to sort of fall for that, <laughs> right? Um, something along those lines. But I, don't, I mean, I think that the, one of the interesting differences is that it would be really hard for the Russians to get people to fall for that because they simply lack the credibility that you get in the Ukrainian case. I mean, this is sort of a general feature of politics, right, which we've certainly seen played out in the UK, is that when you're someone like Johnson, who's just got a track record of lying, it's very hard for things you say to look credible, whereas Starmer, at least for a certain amount of time, got much more of the benefit of the doubt about things like Beergate, um, because he seems like a pretty straightforward, honest sort of person. Um, and I think there's something very similar going on in the Zelensky case is that he, it's not, I mean, the way in which he comes across um, is just as a fairly ordinary, because he was, um, ordinary person who's ended up in these exceptional circumstances. Um, and that gives him a kind of credibility that someone, you know, like Putin or you know, other people in the kind of uh, upper ranks of, of Um, the Russian political system, just are never going to have, um, again, outside of their own country. Um, So, I mean, I think there's sort of, I don't think any of this should be construed as a a sort of a criticism of what Zelensky's doing. Um, I just, I think that it was certainly bad if the Russians did it, but it'd be bad because pretty much everything the Russians are doing with relation to the war is bad. um, And that's what would make it wrong. But I don't think what Zelensky's doing is wrong at all. Um, I just think that it's kind of, um, it's worrying that this is what it takes, as Simon said, in order to sustain interest in this conflict, which it, it clearly does. I mean, as you said, we've seen the, the, the war kind of, it's not so much of it, I mean, it's presented now much at the moment, at least, in a much, um, in a very different way in, say, the UK press, because now it, the story is the effect of grain shortages on the cost of living crisis in the UK, right? So that's kind of now become the main story of the war is not the war itself, but that people are going to be very hungry because of the war. And of course, those things matter, um, and they matter a lot. But Zelensky, I'm sure, is extremely mindful of the fact that that's taking, that's starting slowly to take over as uh, why we should care about this war. Whereas, of course, for him, the, the concerns are kind of much more immediate. Okay, great. Listen, uh, that was a really good discussion. Let's uh, leave things there. And we'll see you all in the uh, second segment, where we'll be thinking about whether we really belong here. And welcome back. The topic of university student admissions, particularly in the UK, is never far from the headlines. And the past two weeks have seen the issue on the front pages again. Stephen Toop, the current 
Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, has suggested that his university will aim to be more welcoming of state school students, which will likely mean fewer places for students from private schools. And commentators and government ministers have been quick to put in their view. Obviously, academics have a view, um, not just because of the day job, but because it speaks to issues of fairness. Um, Helen, do you want to introduce us to this minefield, please? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, so the UK obviously has many good universities, but uh, the Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, obviously the most prestigious amongst these. And it's a kind of uh, a long running debate about the percentage of students from state schools who are able to secure places at Oxbridge compared to the percentage who come from um, independent schools. Um, and in particular, often from just a, a small number of kind of, you know, the top 10 um, private schools in the UK. So roughly the statistics are something like about um, 30 percent of places go to students from private schools. And uh, so that varies a bit, but around 70 percent are going to state schools. Um, and so that might look like we get more people from state schools and that's good. But then once you remember that the private schools are only educating something like about seven percent of children slightly more at private sixth form so about 12 percent um we can see that you know it's it's, it's massively disproportionate the number of places that go to um, privately educated people rather than to people from state schools and so this has been in the news recently because Stephen Toop who is the vice chancellor of Cambridge University has said that there's going to be increasing uh, emphasis on taking students from state schools and this has been interpreted by various people in the press as him saying that private school students will lose out um, and that uh, their, their places as it's often presented are, are being taken from them um, by state school students so uh, that probably tells you what my <laughs> my view is on this thing is that uh, there's this sort of idea that there's a yeah, as if there's a these are these are places that rightly belong to uh, privately educated children and that somehow state school students, because of unfair bias towards them, that um, are suddenly going to be taking places they don't deserve. Um, and so there tend to be two main schools of thought here. Um, one is that these places should be allocated on merit. If uh, um, when it comes to getting into university, merit is about the grades you get and how smart you seem to be based on, you know, your letters of reference from your school and whatever and your application form. And so we should just ignore all of the background considerations and assess purely on uh, the child's seeming ability. Um, and then the other school of thought points out that you get a lot of advantages by going to um, a private school in terms of, say, class size, resources um, and very specifically coaching in order to be able to get you into Oxbridge as well. So you get training for interviews, you get lots of help with your application from people who have a lot of experience and these things just aren't available um, in the majority of cases to children from state schools. And there's also just a massive difference in ambition. So it's taken to be perfectly normal that a child who goes to, say, Eton or St. Paul's would want to go to Oxbridge, whereas, you know, your child from a standard comprehensive somewhere in the north, perhaps, um, it probably wouldn't be a default assumption that they might like to go to Oxbridge. And certainly their school careers will not be geared towards that from primary school age, that this is a smart child who might want to go to university and not just university, but one of the best universities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my view is certainly we should um, <laughs> uh, have a strong bias in favour of admitting um, state school students, just because there's quite a lot of evidence that actually they tend to do better, right? So the 
the thought is something like if you if you manage to come out of a fairly bog standard comprehensive with something like say I'm probably showing my age. Do they do A levels anymore? I don't even know. Yes, they do do A levels. Well done. <laughs> there are many they do these days, like twenty of them. Um, but say you come out with you know an A and two Bs, but you've gone to a pretty bog standard comprehensive school. Um, compare that to somebody who says he's gone to St Paul's and has got three A's or three A stars or star star stars or whatever they get these days. Um, actually, the, the the evidence suggests that the student from the state school, having got those grades at a state school, is a better indication of ability than somebody who's got um, the higher grades from a private school because this, this is someone who's managed to do really well despite the fact they've been in a class with 30 other people. They haven't had any of the special training. Their resources and their access to education opportunities is much poorer. If someone still nonetheless manages to come out with really good grades from that kind of school, that's a sign they're probably pretty smart. Um, whereas someone who's managed to come out with really good grades, grades from a school where they've had the best access to everything is just less impressive. It's not to say they're not smart, but there's no reason to think that they're any smarter than the kid from the comprehensive school. Um, so I think there's, there's there's pretty good reason, and also just reasons in so there's reasons in terms of ability that they're more likely to do well if they've got pretty good grades. I think from a from a state school, but also the reasons of fairness just mean that we should be very mindful of the way in which private schools, literally school, their applicants to get these places in a way that it just isn't available to state school students. Sorry, that's my rant over. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. That was a very unbiased, objective. Thank you. Thank you. No, I try to be. I do. Um, I don't. I mean. I mean. I don't know how much of a debate we're going to have because just by saying that, plus I've indicated my views as well. Erin, um, have you got anything you want to say first, and then I'll come in. I have. I don't have quite the familiarity with the um, British system as as you guys do, but something that just struck me in Helen's comments was the sense of entitlement. And I guess I wasn't quite sort of aware of that, but the idea, Helen, as you sort of sketched it, is that it's almost like we're entitled to go to Oxford and Cambridge if we've gone to these other schools. And what's at stake here is taking away that entitlement or trying to... Yeah. Anyway, right. it's just, this is something that I'm not familiar with, but it seemed like this, this stood out to me in the... I, th I think that's definitely a, um, a certain strain of the debate. And, and that's just generally true when you think about um, positive discrimination in general in hiring practices. There's a thought that um, these are jobs that properly belong to sort of straight white men. And that when you have positive discrimination, what you're doing is taking jobs that should have gone or would have gone to those people. And I think that's the thing is that people conflate the would have gone to should have gone. Um, of course, we know it's true that they would have gone to the straight white man. That's mm -hmm. why we're doing the positive discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, a thought that because they would have, then that person was entitled to, you know, were it not for the discrimination, they would have got the job, mm -hmm. and the positive discrimination. Right. So um, they feel like something is taken away from them if they don't get into mm. it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just, just on that. So when the Times uh, had the interview with, with Stephen Toop, it was about a week, week and a half ago, uh, I think, um, I mean, actually, the, the report was was a very good report, but the headline was Cambridge VC warns private schools they're likely to lose their places, mm -hmm. right? As if that these were the, I mean, just to echo what Helen was saying, as if that these these were their places that they owned. Yeah, this uh, is their quota. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I will say, you know, I, I know quite a lot of um, people who've, who've been to private school. I mean, I went to Oxford as, a, as an undergraduate from my, you know, black country working class hovel carrying my my knapsack 
on, on, on my shoulders and walking, blinking into the um, honey-kissed sandstone kind of sunlight. Where was I going with that? Um, look at you now. Look, look at me now. Look at me now, right? <laughs> So, uh, so, so I mean, I, mean, I went went to Oxford, and actually, I, I mean, I found that the whole process, you know, pretty good, and perhaps I've got lots of reflections on, on, on that. But there's certain, and, and certainly, yeah. So I met, uh, I had quite a few friends who went to private school, and actually, some who went on grants and scholarships, some whose parents were very wealthy, you know, all sorts of backgrounds, actually. Um, and certainly, there are, there are many people. I mean, actually, philosophers I know as well who would agree with this sort of with, with Helen's very objective. Uh, yet yeah, subtly pointed introduction, but but yeah, there is. I mean, as Helen said, there's a strain of this entitlement. I mean, as shown by that Times headline, um, as shown by a few of the op-ed pieces I've seen in the last couple of weeks, as as by some comments by government ministers um, and and other people that there's a kind of there's that there's that underlying sense of entitlement from some people, and so this this whole debate about let, let's say a, you know proven ability by whatever measure, and typically it's A-levels or IB um, or Scottish hires or whatever it might be, proven ability at an age of 18 versus the ability you've got plus, you know, think then thinking about those contextual factors, as Helen indicated, to think about that potential, right, and, and trying to weigh up, you know, what, what, what should universities, I mean, not just Oxford and Cambridge, but other universities as well, what should they be be looking for for for, um, for places, and I think there's there's something really interesting there. I mean, we, we framed it as fairness. There's just something interesting there about what what, you, what kind of educational atmosphere do you want to build? Um, yeah, I mean, sort of on this point, how do you do they do they have? I, I understand that the the vice chancellor was out saying this is what we want to do, um, but how do they go about doing that? Do you do has has there been much information about this is I think the education minister was pushing back against the idea that we tilt the system yeah. or something in favor of, of of state schools. But what what does that involve? Has Cambridge said this is how we're going to do it? Or I, I, I haven't seen any details. Yeah. I, mean, I can certainly say what some other universities do in the sector. They actually do yeah. what, what Helen was indicating. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, this was happening about 20 years ago. I mean, I used to teach at, at Bristol and they were doing it 20 years ago. I still think, mm. I think they do. So right. you used to get your typical UCAS form, so your university entrance form with your application um, and your predicted grades and whatever. And there used to be stickers on the front which used to say, this person's gone to this school and the average points, because you get awarded points for, for various um, A-level grades, the average points in that school know in the last three years were x y and z and then you could see how well this student was performing as against the school average in the way that Mm -hmm. that Alan indicated in her opening Mm -hmm. comments and that's a really big um, important contextual factor there's also other things as well that you that as a university in in your whole admissions system you can do to encourage students to think about coming to your university and coming to university in general which loads of universities carry out I mean when when I was at Oxford I used to I mean, it'll be, it's gone through various different changes and titles. But when I was there, it was called Target Schools and, and, and students were encouraged and given a bit of money to go back to schools in their region and go and give talks about, hey, I'm just like you, but look at me. I went, um, I went to, in my case, Oxford. And, and all of those things are, are very important. So I, I don't know exactly what Cambridge will do, but I imagine it will be something like, like that, rather than just think. having a fixed percentage quota, which, of course, is what some people are imagining it would be. Yeah, I see. This is yeah, this is interesting. the The way we contextualize it is: here's how I did relative to my peers at my school, hmm. and so if I didn't 
get whatever Helen was saying, five A star star stars. Um, but I did really well in my class and got three A's and a B or whatever it is. That that that's this is the contextual stuff that we're looking at when we're deciding how we admit people. And this is a way to potentially address some of the issues and how we might uh, increase the number of... I see. Okay. Yeah. Just a point. Probably just don't take Helen's indication of how many stars there are on A-levels as an indication <laughs> yeah. of how the system yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought she was serious. There's A and actually. A star. And I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, A-levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, we should also say that, of course, I mean, as Simon sort of um, alluded to, the private state school distinction isn't a perfect tracker of wealth. No. Um, yeah. You know, you get lots of very good um, state schools that are in wealthy catchment areas yeah. where they do very similar things, and you do get lots of people going to um, private schools who are on scholarships and so on. Um, so it's not a perfect tracker, but nonetheless, clearly, you do get all kinds of advantages. And so it's not. It's not just about tracking wealth. I mean, that's the other thing to say is that we're not purely just trying to track wealth. We're trying to track the fact that these schools are very much geared towards not gaming the system exactly, but in a a way it kind of is, right? Because they know what um, somebody um, at an Oxford college is looking for on that UCAS application form. And so uh, they just have all of this experience of getting students into Oxford. And that's how they think of it. And of course, these things are all uh, their rates of acceptance of getting students into Oxbridge is publicised and there are rank lead tables that are publicly available so when parents are choosing where to send their children all of this information is out there and often parents will choose on the basis of how likely their child is to get into Oxbridge if they pay all this money I mean there's a reason why people pay right the reason why you pay for yeah, private yeah. schooling is because it gives you advantages um, and so one of the ways in which we should try to redress the fact that wealth can bring those kind of advantages is by so the, the education secretary suggested that we shouldn't tilt the system. But the system, of course, is already massively tilted. It's just tilted in the other way. Right? So it's, not, it's not a question of whether we, we um, it, it's about trying to untilt it yeah, um, and yeah. trying to counteract some of the advantages that the, the students from the private schools have. I thought there was something interesting here on the sort of tilted back, as you say. I think maybe it was a couple of years ago floating around in the UK, there was this sort of cause of like abolish private schools or abolish independent schools. And this, there was something similar in the education secretary's sort of response to this where, you know, entrance should be merit-based. And then what we, what we ought to do is sort of create schools, state schools that are as good as independent schools. Uh, and, And that's a lofty ambition, but I don't see the Tories put dedicating the money and resources to the state school system such that they can deliver the kind of education that whatever your top British public school can. And, and so the, this raises the question, okay, the state schools, you know, the government is not going to fund them. So they are competing on an equal footing. But I guess part of me is like, I wouldn't want to abolish the state or the independent schools as a way of leveling the playing field because I think it's great that there are places that teach high schoolers Latin and ancient Greek, and that, that it's possible, at least for some people, to get this education, even if everybody can't get that education. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I have this intuition that that we'd be losing something if we abolished the independent or public schools as a way to sort of level the playing field. I mean, one way to really improve state schools would be if all of the 
very wealthy people who spend had to send who now send their children to to private schools have to send them to state schools. I reckon you'd see a pretty right uh, rapid, yeah. maybe then they could teach Latin, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I mean, I think one of the problems here, of course, is that the people who have, especially in a conservative government, who have power and influence. I mean, they'll send their kids to private schools. Right? So, I mean, very wealthy people yeah, who yeah. could affect change um, send their children to private schools, and so they just don't have a stake in right, um, right. In, in the public in the state school system, which is the kind of stake that you need um, in order to get more funding into schools to improve schools. So, I mean, I do favour abolishing um, private schools. Um, mostly for this reason that the state schools just won't ever I mean it's you know it's always a little little bit unrealistic I think you would get parity but they just they're so far behind not all of them but some of them some of them are so far behind that and it's just I think that one of the reasons for this is simply that rich people don't have to send their children to those schools yeah yeah I mean I guess my my worry is that there isn't the political will to do that and given that there isn't the political will to do that it's good to have I mean, if you're a champion of education, it's good that people, some people anyway, can get this kind of education. I suppose that's where I'm coming from. If there is yeah, the political will to create, you know, make every school on par with the best, um, then that would be fabulous. But yeah. it seems like there isn't the political will. It, it may be difficult, this podcast, to provide any sort of balance, so I, I won't do it. I mean, just to agree <laughs> with Helen. Um, yeah. I mean, in fact, so, I mean, in fact just, just, I mean, this is like kind of, perhaps not UK, but certainly English Education 101 for you, Aaron. So, I mean, a key thing about um, some of the schools we've been talking about, the private schools, is that yeah. uh, they're classed as charities, even though when it, when, it, when it pleases them, they operate as businesses, right? And so okay. they, don't, they don't pay tax. Oh, wow. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Yeah. So, and there's, there's something very interesting. So, I mean, you're right that, um, I mean, the way you were phrasing it, if there's no political will, it's good that some people get to learn Latin. I mean, there's, there's actually, you know, at some state schools, um, there's, there's, there's Latin and Greek taught, but obviously not in, not in great numbers. But it's not. But then the access to those schools is obviously severely limited. So, yes, some people are getting access to Latin, but, but the, the people who can get access to that, there's a certain big qualifying criteria, which is either wealth or being lucky enough to get a, get a, mm -hmm. a grant or scholarship right. to, yeah. to, to help you with the fee. I mean, it goes, I mean, a little bit deeper. So, of course, I live in, in Kent, where we have the 11 plus, and that, that operates in some other parts of the country as well, I think Northern Ireland and some other English counties. And that's a whole other level of intense tutoring and prep schools and everything as people right. try to get into the really great grammar schools that, that, that we have mm -hmm. in parts of the, of the county. Um, and there's, so in fact, there's sort of selection kind of built into the system from primary school onwards Oh wow! of a different yeah. sort, uh -huh. um, even in the state, state system. There's, I mean, I suppose it raises th this, this question moving on, because otherwise we're not going to get any debate, are we? Helen and I are just going to be agreeing and then telling you what's what. Um, uh -huh. Well, I don't know the system so well, so these are just things that stand obviously out. needed as Helen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so it's a he, but here's here's a thought, right? So there, I mean, something I've always thought there, there are universities, and they're always in the spotlight, particularly Oxford and Cambridge. And I do have, even though I went to Oxford, and I've got no, no no massive connection with it now. So I always feel like sort of some sympathy, right? Because they're always kind of kicked um, in the in the press, even despite their their best efforts. But actually, I've always thought Oxford, Cambridge, indeed many other universities, are kind of a sticking plaster, right? And actually, the real problem is actually what's going on in the in the in the school system. So, I suppose it's a kind of different way of of, of putting the debate. How much should universities be 
um, education institutions and how much should they be kind of trying to be agents of social change? I mean, there's that really interesting kind of tension when you're running a university there, which which comes back to the, are we getting the, 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 the best students at age 18 or are we going for potential and thinking about other things? And I mean, so it is well, there the might problem, be a trade-off there. Yeah, is there is a problem primarily, or indeed wholly, with with the school system, and universities should just just take you know, whoever they've got at, at a particular age to to come into their admissions. I mean, that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, is the idea is it's almost too late at the university level? Is this part? I mean, of the there's work? certainly lots of. I mean, I don't know whether it's too late. But there's certainly lots of education evidence um, over across many years, certainly in our country, and I imagine across a number of other countries as well. That if you really want to make a difference in terms of social mobility, you put your money in primary school education. I worry a bit about the kind of setup of that. Yeah, go on. Because it, it it suggests that there's a conflict between sort of the education stuff, so getting yeah. the best and smartest yeah, yeah. students, and uh, meeting various social goals. And mm-hmm. my thought earlier was actually there is no conflict because okay. um, very often the students who might have slightly lower grades are nonetheless still the most able students yeah. um, who've gone to state schools and got these slightly lower grades. Um, and so you can have those people without compromising your goal of providing you know, the best education to the most able people and also thereby meet various um, socially important goods like um, achieving greater equality. I mean, and this this particularly matters, I think, in the UK, because, I mean, although there are similar worries in, say, the United States, where you have, you know, lots of extremely expensive private schools and then those people get funneled into um, very good universities, often those are private universities, whereas Oxford and Oxford and Cambridge um, I mean, they're, they're state institutions. Obviously, colleges have various you know, endowments and so on, but I mean, they get a lot of government funding. And so one of the problems with the way that we have this kind of disproportionate representation of students from private schools is that you're giving this sort of tiny percentage of the population this massively inflated chance of getting access to these government resources. Um, and government resources should, as far as it's possible, be fairly shared amongst children and young people whereas at the moment there's this whole chunk of money of educational resources which is i don't say reserved for but in practice is effectively reserved for um this very small particularly privileged sector sector of the population um so i just i don't i don't buy into the thought that it's i mean i do think universities whether they like it or not are institutions of social change but i think it's a good thing that they're institutions of social change because of course education has always been a driver of, of, of social change what else you know it's it's the most important driver of social change and so it's not as if universities have a choice about whether or not they're educational establishments or drivers of social change you can't be one without being the other but i just don't think there's any conflict between having I this idea that you know, if you if you, you just take the A level grades and that that tells you how smart people are, it's just clearly the evidence suggests not true. Getting the best grades doesn't show that you're the smartest. And what matters is how well you've done in the situation you were you were in, and that's going to be a better indication of how smart you are. Yeah. So in fact, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with any of that, Helen. I suppose that my my setup was. <laughs> um, I mean, so you you're looking at you know in terms of admissions, you're looking at education on whatever it is. I mean, and that then that goes into that merit or potential um, question, right? Or whether you actually think uh, when you're designing your admission system, balanced against it, you also want to be um, an agent of social change. I mean, how, how much that, that should come into it, right? So that is, 
you, you, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing where you actually think, well, perhaps we should have quotas once people hit a certain could, minimum threshold. You could justify having the quotas purely on merit. Uh-huh. And then as a side effect, you get the social change. Right. Yeah, I suppose that, that's the thing then. So whether you think social change is an acknowledged effect, but it's a side effect, or whether it's something one's aiming for. I mean, you could aim at it, but I think you don't need to, right? So I think this, this, this uh-huh. we should challenge this way, which is a very common way of setting up the debate, as it's the kind of, on the one hand, you've got these meritorious students, but on the other hand, you've got these social goals that conflict with giving the most deserving students the places. And that's just not true. <laughs> so I think that you can you could do it solely on merit and you would still get the social change whether you aimed at it or not. But it would be a good thing that you got it. And it's also just a mistake to think that you could be an educational institution and, and not be a lever of social change. So, um, yeah, I just I think that's sort of the uh, the way in which certainly in the press, but also often by institutions themselves, that this is um, and by the government, the, the way that this is framed as some sort of class warfare or something, you know, it's just, um, you know, sort of um, that would devalue the, uh, an Oxford education or a Cambridge education because, you know, suddenly you're letting in all these people who are going to bring the standards down. I mean, anybody who's taught in a university can tell you that there is absolutely no reason to think that you, you cannot really tell the difference between a student who's been to a private school and a state school. Um, and there's no reason at all to think that students from private school are going to do better. Um, and the evidence is that often they, they, they do slightly worse. Yeah, absolutely. Not to say lots of them aren't very smart. Of course, lots of them are. Lots of professional academics went to private school and are exceptionally good. But there's also lots of people who didn't who are also exceptionally good. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I just I think that the, the this isn't an argument about merit versus social change. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, any last thoughts from either of you? Aaron, do you feel as if you have some insight uh, yeah, in a very I, unbiased I, way into the I, I, I learned education about, system. I, I did. Yeah, I feel like I have an objective account of, of the system now. Right. And um, I can sleep better at night as a result. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, one, one, one maybe quick point is that maybe the people who are pushing back against this are pushing back against the idea that the university is an institution of social change. Like if you have this idea of entitlement, then maybe it's, an institution of social conservation or mm. something like that. we're trying to maintain the status quo as opposed to transforming it oh yeah um, i mean that's that's got to be true i mean you go 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 to high table at an oxford college you know <laughs> i mean clearly um conservatism is 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 the order of the day yeah i mean clear and it, there's a whole other i can have a whole, a whole other rant about that right? <laughs> uh, all of the ways in which um these places have rituals um that I mean, I wouldn't say they're designed to exclude it. I don't know what they were designed for when they originally came about, but um, certainly I think they have the effect of intimidating and thereby excluding people who didn't go to private schools. Um, but yeah, and, and clearly there are some people who just see this as as a kind of you know trying to preserve things as they've always been. But luckily they don't own the universities. Okay, great. Let's uh, leave it there, both of you, and uh, we'll see you in the next part. And welcome back. At the start of the programme, I didn't say we were going to talk about Jordan Peterson because we were wondering whether we would do it or not, but here we go. 
This week, famed ideas guru for hire, Jordan Peterson, attracted a lot of attention for claiming in a much-watched tweeted video that the Bible was the basis or precondition for truth. Uh, I know he's been saying this uh, a lot before this week, too. Aaron, do you want to get your head around this one for us, please? Well, I'll, I'll try. Uh, in some ways, this is, I think, the question for all of us today is, do we even try to make sense of this and somehow legitimate it? Um, do you, does doing so somehow bolster Jordan Peterson's brand? Do we want to be doing this? How do philosophers engage with somebody who at times is definitely behaving as a provocateur and doesn't seem to care about truth, even though he's talking about the Bible as a precondition of truth? But at the risk of trying to, well, I guess, but at the risk of legitimating him by trying to make sense of this, I, I will nevertheless hazard an attempt of what's going on when he says the Bible is a precondition of truth or, uh, yeah, a meta-truth, I think he says in the tweet. Um, so on Twitter, when philosophers were responding to this, some of them talked about, oh, well, what Pedersen is talking about here is, is the Kantian categories of the understanding. Um, or something along those lines, or potentially a Kuhnian paradigm. And for those who aren't familiar, these right, the categories are the condition of possibility for us having access to empirical facts, or something roughly along those lines. This is the Copernican turn in Kant, where we aren't just passive observers of the world, and we passively accept and have access to facts, but rather we play an active role, and our categories through which we understand the world have an active role to play in understanding empirical reality. And potentially the, the most accessible version of this is the idea of a Kuhnian paradigm, where you know the, the Newtonian paradigm tells us that and what physical reality is, namely that physical reality is made up of matter and and motion and it's only through this paradigm that we have access to these facts and the paradigm shifts and einstein comes along and it seems that material reality isn't quite as we imagine through the newtonian or physical reality isn't quite now how does this connect to what peterson is talking about well it seems that what he's saying is that the bible in some ways functions like a, a kuhnian paradigm or a something like the categories of understanding, namely it's a worldview through which we are able to make sense of facts in the world. He, in this tweet, he says there are an infinite number of facts and we need somehow to classify or organize them. And so the Bible somehow allows us to determine what is and what isn't salient. And insofar as the Bible allows us to determine what is or isn't salient, um, it then allows us to make truth claims about the facts that the Bible allows to show up in some meaningful way. In the same way that a Kuhnian paradigm gives us access to empirical facts, which we can then make true statements about. So without access through the paradigm, we can't make true statements about the natural world. And it seems like Pedersen is saying the Bible is something like the Kuhnian paradigm. Without the Bible, we wouldn't be able to make true statements about facts in the world. This is my best attempt to try and make sense. I, of I actually and, think, Aaron, I'm sitting here in awe. I think that was a pretty good attempt. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's too good. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's giving far, far too much credence to the... Yeah. Of, well, I mean, so this is, the, this, is, this is the question, is, is, is how do you sort of engage with this, right? Ought we to be doing something like this? 
do we respond to this? Because, I mean, it's interesting. He obviously has this massive following in his books. He cites famous historical philosophers and psychologists, and he potentially does so to give himself credence by hanging on to the coattails of these these famous historical figures. So are we lending him legitimacy when we try to make sense of his ideas by appealing to these historical figures? Or is it possible to show, actually, you have no idea what you're talking about when you're engaging with these historical figures, and our duty is to sort of give an accurate representation of what these historical figures are doing and sort of push back against the, the, the Pedersen reading and following? And is this, are we even just feeding into it by the three professional philosophers even taking him talking about him. Is this a problem? Yeah, well, I guess these are all questions raised. We'll, 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 we'll see. Well, that that's a real kind of meta discussion, isn't it? We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if this makes it out into into the public realm. Uh, Helen, do you, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, this is, so, so uh, one of the reasons why we weren't sure whether we were going to talk about this today was because I said I wasn't sure we should because. There's not much to say other than what a load of nonsense. And also there's worries that Peterson's just not very well. And it's a bit, um, uh, I'm not sure whether we should really just take the piss out of somebody who's who's not very well. I mean, I do think it, it's, it's. I mean, even, even the thought of, uh, well, look, you know, philosophers should um, at least try and debunk this stuff and show that it's, it's nonsense. I mean, I mean, lots of people say lots of silly things all the time. And so it matters. The mere fact that you single someone else as worthy of engaging with is still a way of sort of giving them prestige and credence um, that they don't deserve in many cases. And certainly, I think in this case, um, I mean, I do think, I mean, I find, you know, Peterson, he is sort of fascinating. And um, so we talked about this a little bit before we started recording as a kind of, you know, is this just a, a really long piece of performance art um, or is this someone having some kind of mental breakdown um, or is this just the same person who sincerely believes what they're what they're saying? I find it really hard to believe that the third of those is true just because of the range of topics on which he professes to have expertise. Right. So, he, you know, I saw him do this talk, this interview with on um on energy and like a nuclear power where he obviously has no idea about any how any of this stuff works but so he just kind of says words like fusion a lot and none of it makes any sense it's just this sort of view that's out you know there's sort of, not even a view yeah um, this thing's just the same right it's just this kind of you know there are too many facts like what does that even mean <laughs> you know we just lost count we lost count of about a hundred thousand and now we just don't know what to do with ourselves because new facts keep keep being created and that's another fact and oh god it's just this sort of self-effectuating horror i mean i mean it's so yeah, question begging right but, but i mean it's interesting the the <laughs> idea is that Right, you you yourself are pushing back against his nonsense, and presumably one of the reasons to push back against the nonsense is because he has five million YouTube followers, and, and that 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 this is an influential person, and you want yeah. to try and and. But, 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 but I don't know that by talking about his philosophical claims is the way to push back against that, because that's engaging with him like we would engage with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think the way it just you can say something like this is a load of nonsense it's not worth engaging with mm-hmm. and I think that might be better than sort of saying well you know look here's this other stuff you might be referring to and it might be drawing on these respective like it's, it's just a load of nonsense and it's, you know mm-hmm. pretty much everything he says is just a load of nonsense and um, yeah so I do and I do also think that this might just be somebody having a very public breakdown and so I do worry about 
I mean, you know, it's, it is funny, right? It's kind of there's just too many facts, and so we just don't know what to do, and so now we need the Bible to tell us what. I mean, it just I mean, you know, you don't have to be an atheist to see it's just mad. Um, but yeah, I just kind of you know, it seems to me like someone is just not very well. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I wonder if he's, I wonder if it's he's not very well, or it's I guess you know he does have this. He had he was in Moscow after having a mental breakdown a couple years ago. But it's hard to tell if if it's just like I'm being a provocateur, right? And how do you how do you respond to the provocateur making these wild claims to attract attention? In some ways, this circles back to the Zelensky conversation. We were like, maybe he's just a good performer. He somehow does like the the performance art thing that that there's a certain yeah. um, I mean, course, style I mean, or charisma or whatever. The crossover between the two, like in this Venn diagram, of course, is Gwyneth Paltrow, who's both an actor. And also says loads of really crazy stuff that you think she probably can't really believe um, and makes a shed load of money off it, right? Which is presumably what Peterson's doing as well. So, you know, I do this, but in the same way that I wouldn't suggest that we engage with Gwyneth Paltrow's ideas on the COVID vaccine. Um, but we might say, God, Gwyneth Paltrow, she, she talks a load of nonsense, but we wouldn't expect scientists to interrogate her suggestions for curing COVID. Um, I sort of feel the same about Peterson that we might just say, well, it's just a load of nonsense. Um, but we don't really need to interrogate the, interrogate the the substance of the claims. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the the, the 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 difference between the two is that at one point Peterson was a professional academic who was tenured at the University of Toronto for doing serious academic work. So he has these credentials, and he sort of leans on those credentials and cites these people to kind of back up his seemingly nonsense claims. Um, so he's sort of playing the academic game, but maybe not. So this is maybe the idea is maybe, maybe, yes, we have a bit more of a vested interest in this case of, because he, he, you know, he did. I mean, he's obviously had, I mean, well, publicized, had some kind of breakdown. And then there's this question of whether, you know, that, that in fact constituted a sort of more substantial break in personality. Whereas the sort of the, the early Peterson, who was a respectable academic, and now we've got the current Peterson. But. I mean, it's, I mean, in a way, it's sort of it's one of the things that's fascinating about watching him give interviews is the extent to which he undermines those credentials, not just by um, talking nonsense, but um, so by saying things like, well, the problem with uh, people who believe in climate change is that they rely on, on models and statistics and those things are just nonsense. Uh, I mean, it, well, quite a lot of what your doctoral thesis and presumably undergraduate work being in the sciences would have been based on would be on these kind of models and their predictive powers and how to do good models and so, so you know he has this kind of critical stance towards science despite the fact that his own background is in my thought at that point is is that's why he's got quite a lot of followers right because if you're in that sort of zone you'll say yeah and he he really knows his stuff he knows the truth because he used to know all this stuff about models and statistics I mean, the person who comes to mind, we haven't mentioned it, is David Icke, actually. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. who, I mean, again, Aaron, this is kind of perhaps uh, British Culture 101. So David Icke used to be um, a sports presenter. For, for, for a time, actually, he was a goalkeeper, um, uh, football. And then he moved into sports presenting on the BBC. And then then he moved into politics and, and for a time was associated with the Green Party. I, don't know if he, I think he was an official spokesman. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> It was something like that. And then then things started to go a bit weird. Um, public pronouncements about 
you know, significant elite politicians around the world being lizards from space. Um, I mean, they're, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was that. I mean, poor man, poor man, actually. Uh, he was wearing a lot of shell suits for a time because he was worried about um, <laughs> official clothes and things. That they were, I mean, he, I mean, poor man. Um, yeah, and so the idea here is that you know we should we should just pity Peterson. Yeah. He's going mad. Yeah. He's I mean, th- 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 there's yeah. there's something interesting as well about you know having. I mean, because I've 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 deliberately not had much to do with with Peterson and just ignoring me the way that, that Helen was saying. So I watched some of these videos. And what's interesting, and in fact, the way you would describe me, Aaron, which in the in the intro, which I think was very good, is of course that there's, and this is you know typical with with many aspects of propaganda, right? Going back to your link with Zelensky and, and the war, is that you you have to have a significant number of grains of truth in what you're saying. So clearly, as we as philosophers, right, there, there's a clearly a, a big philosophical, come academic heritage, thinking about categories of thoughts. There's this booming and buzzing experience. How do we make sense of it? It's because we're hardwired to think in terms of and to frame things in terms of case of Kant, you know, space and time and motion and and, and so on. And that makes sense. It also makes sense to say the Bible is a really, really, really important book in terms of human civilization, certainly Western civilization, and lots of things are linked to it and we understand things. And it's, you know, I mean, that, that's true, right? Whatever one one thinks about the, the, the truth of the Bible and its status. Put those two things together, though, when you get uh, and you get kind of the, the interviews and, and videos mm-hmm. uh, he's been sharing, which, yeah. as Helen says, I mean, they're, they're just, just nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that, of course, is the interesting thing about propaganda, right? Really effective propaganda uses truth and how it will be received by an audience, and says, look, there's there's things that you know, and look, we'll just take it one stage further. It goes back to my point about Peterson and statistics and models, right? People who follow him or his, his millions of followers will say, yeah, and and, uh, and he knows what he's talking about because he really used statistics and models a lot. Um, so if he thinks that they're they're uh, they're bad things, then he must be onto something. That's the, that's the kind yeah, of yeah, right. Like somehow leaning on his expertise while undermining it. I mean, it has all the sort of well, maybe not all, but many of the hallmarks of kind of conspiracy theory in that sense, right, is that any countervailing evidence is just more in fact evidence um, of the conspiracy, um, which is, I mean, obviously a massive and interesting topic. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if people typically think of Peterson as being a conspiracy theorist. I don't know enough about him, but it certainly has these elements of, um, you know, he knows who his audience are. He knows what they want to hear. He knows the views that he wants, to, that they want to have vindicated. And, and it's clearly it's been enormously successful for him. Right? Yeah, I mean, this, this 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 just feeds into the idea that it's a performance, right? Mm, but, I think it must be. I think it must be. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't think anybody. I mean, because it's so incoherent and such non, like complete sort of babbling that it's hard to sort of. But I know it's almost hard to believe. I mean, you have to be really good at it. Like, I mean, you have to sort of. It's hard to imagine you could say so many crazy things by accident. Um, but it's also hard to imagine that someone could do, devote so much energy to this sort of persona which they put on. Um, but then maybe, I don't know, there's, I guess there's a lot of um, public figures that we think are something like this. So Trump, right, seemed like someone mm-hmm. who, you know, people sort of sometimes forget that he, you know, he's, it's not like he's a lifelong Republican, right? There's just a point at which he sort of decided to become a Republican and then there's yeah. this person who, he could easily have gone the other way 
and decided he was going to, you know, support the Democratic Party. But, you know, he just sort of puts on this persona and then just inhabits it. And it just becomes, you know, he just says the things people want to hear and it works for him. And that's what drives him. And I, you know, that seems like one very credible explanation of what's going on in Peterson's case. He just doesn't really care what he says. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this this sort of circles back to where we started with the idea that the worry that, let's say, Plato and Rousseau had about actors is that they just adopt different roles for mm -hmm. the sake of whatever they want to do, whatever suits their own personal interests. And, and they're very good at that. So they can get an audience and get followers. And Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about and I won't say about Peterson, because I don't know, I genuinely don't know enough about him. And I'm always quite skeptical about or, or kind of worried about, you know, pronouncing about what people's own health and mental health mm -hmm. people, people I don't know, but I'll say characters such as Peterson, right, perhaps or like him is that so there's that interesting, you know, we've just gone back onto performance. And, of course, there are some people who start to inhabit the character they've created. So, for example, we just mentioned Trump. I mean, in some sense, it's a performance, but I think it's an extension of his character. And I think he's, he's just kind of inhabiting that character. And I, I don't know enough about Peterson, but there are other people as well who just live that, live that, that character. So, so in a way, I don't know how much it's a performance and how much it's him. I mean, I get what you get, what you're saying, at, but I'm just, I'm just interested in, in that, in a way that, for example, to take a, I think a different sort of person, Boris Johnson has clearly created this character of Boris, right? Who's this politician? But actually, many people will say he's a lot smarter in, in private than he portrays in public because he's adopted this persona of this bumbling public schoolboy who just happens to be, you know, a very powerful man. And, and you know, his, his anecdotes and his persona will get him through. And, of course, you know, many people think he's being found out. Um, but actually, in private, he's not, he's not quite like that. And so there's some interesting issues in all the people we've raised about how much they're they're performing and how much they're in, they're actually it's an extension of their personality. In fact, they're they're inhabiting that that character now. Um, thoughts for another day, perhaps on that. Yeah, one. As, you, as you said, it's hard to say from a from a distance. You know, I mean, and yeah, yeah, and you're, I mean, clearly, I, I, yeah, we should all be very mindful of uh, diagnosing people we don't know with mental health problems. But um, yeah, it is just yeah, it, it makes me worry about sort of the uh, piling on too much onto someone like Peterson who. Well, there's good reason to think that this is just some sort of um, disorder um, that um, gives rise to these very, very peculiar claims. Yeah. My view is a bit like um, hate the sin, love the sinner, hate the nonsense, love the nonsense spreader. That's nice. That's a, a secular adage for our time, Simon. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what we're trying to do. Listen, let's um, leave it there. And who knows? We'll, we'll see if we broadcast this third segment or, or, or not. I'd just like to say um, thank you to Aaron for appearing with us today. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, my pleasure. Good times. Great. We'll, we'll certainly have you back on. And Helen, thanks for appearing as well. Thanks very much for having me. Great. Uh, and thank you for listening. And all being well, we'll be joining you for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News soon. Mm -hmm.